0: Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. Quick programming note, I apologize for not getting an episode out last week. I had family in town and could not quite pull it all together. That also means that you are going to hear some references to things like the Nebula Awards happening last weekend. Uh, Some of this audio was recorded a week ago and is therefore out of date please disregard. Thank you. I will start having guests again next week and have four interviews lined up that I'm pretty excited about, so should be able to keep you with voices other than mine for a while. Hopefully you will enjoy those. Hopefully you will also put up with me talking to myself this week. I am going to start this week by squeeing a bit because on Friday night, the well, over the weekend, the SIFWA Nebula Awards were handed out. But more importantly, on Friday night, I got to go get books signed. There were a number of authors in town. They had a public signing. Sadly, Anne Leckie was trapped in a train behind spilled bacon, but lots of other people were there. And so many authors who I've heard about, and whose books or stories I've read and who I've seen and interacted with on Twitter were there and I got to go see them in person and it was really neat and I got my copy of the Three Body Problem signed and I got Ken Liu to sign The Grace of Kings and the Three Body Problem and His Story in Long Hidden. There were other authors from the Long Hidden anthology who were there and who very kindly handled this guy walking up to them and saying, "Hi, I know you from Twitter. Will you please sign your story and let's have a moment in which I squee about how wonderful you were?" I got Mary Robinette Kowal to sign her contribution to Women Destroy Science Fiction, and it was this very odd. I mean, it is in general very odd to see people who you've seen as images on the internet to suddenly see her in person. And then She started talking, and the voice that I've been hearing out of writing excuses for years was right there, and and it clicked, and I said, oh yes, you are in fact the real person. I now have not only my memories of the signing, but also, of course, I can open the books and look at them. Something that I didn't realize, but that authors who have done this many, many times in many, many settings did, was that you can do neat things like writing down when you signed it. So I have the dates and the event that it was the Nebula signing. I have a little note from Lisa Bolakaja. Thank you very much, and I wish I had gotten a picture. I will do that next time. I have these physical artifacts, my books, the books that I have loved and enjoyed. They are now also signed by the authors. I have the memory of going to this weekend event, or this event on Friday night, and getting them signed. It's a nice, happy association for me. And I'm sure that there are some people for whom it wouldn't necessarily be a nice, happy association, but you can't take it away from me. I am two chapters into Naomi Novik's newest Uprooted, a fairy tale that is generally getting rave reviews online and which I am just having trouble getting into. And I was thinking about that today and realized how much that's a reflection on my reading and the sorts of things that I'm looking for because Uprooted is the story so far of a girl who I believe is 14 at the time who gets taken to a tower inhabited by a wizard because every 10 years he comes to her village and picks one of the girls of the appropriate age and she was one of them and she didn't expect to be the one picked, but she is, and so now she's alone in this tower with this fairly threatening guy, and he's a wizard, and who knows what's going to happen, except that they come out the other end. You know, at 24, they're all released, although they tend not to stay in their villages for very long. And I realized, as I was thinking about why I'm not particularly engaged with this so far, there's a small piece of it that I think has to do with language. Looking at it, the... Paragraphs and the language and the images are beautiful and evocative, and I tend to skim and not pay a whole lot of attention to language, so I think it's possible that some of this is me ignoring one of the strengths of the book, but even more. There's a kind of a mystery about why there's this wizard in a tower, and maybe he has some enemies, and maybe he's doing different kinds of magic, and all of that is not central to the story, at least so far, but it's the stuff that I'm picking up on and interested in. That is part of the story, most of the story is focused on this girl who's been taken from her family and her friends and is in this tower and wasn't expecting to be in this tower and she's trying to figure it out and she's clearly feeling threatened and what is she supposed to be doing, and what does the wizard want of her and it's her story, and I have been reading for his story, and I've been reading for. What is it that he does, and who are his enemies, and what kind of magic does he do? And those are all of the things that I've been keying on and picking up on, and I've been sort of ignoring the actual central story, the story of this girl who's just been taken to the tower. And it was interesting for me to realize that, and to see just how much my reading based on a lot of secondary world fantasies from the 90s and lots of farm boys going off and saving the world with the help of their wizardly mentors. The kind of stuff that I'm centering is the man and the magic and the sorts of magic that he's doing and the mystery around the tower and I'm basically uninterested in this girl who's just been kidnapped up until you know she becomes powerful enough to move the plot or interesting enough to kind of impact whatever the the real story is I'm looking for the real story the story of what's going on with this wizard and why does he steal someone every 10 years and and those kinds of things and I haven't necessarily been consciously saying to myself that's what I'm looking for but it's clear to me looking at how I'm reacting to the book and the story so far that that's what's going on having realized that I'm restarting uprooted tonight and I will be starting from the beginning but I thought it was interesting and worth calling out and and pointing out fairly specifically that for all that I'm interested in reading stories by many different authors and stories about many different protagonists there's a whole lot of habit and ingrained reading patterns that make me look for very specific kinds of stories and I'm looking for men and I'm looking for big world shattering stuff and I'm trying to figure out how your magic and mystery works and I am dismissing characters that seem like they are minor or secondary or not being put into social positions of power and there's just a whole lot of conditioning in what I'm doing and I want to note that and point that out partly for myself and partly because I think it's a useful thing to notice in general. It's also interesting for me to think about why a particular book doesn't work for me, because there are a lot that don't work for me, and there are a lot which are favorably reviewed by people whose opinions I respect that just don't really work for me and that I don't enjoy very much. And sometimes I've been able to articulate why I think that was, and with Uprooted I was a little bit baffled and now am not. So it's interesting to think, okay, when I'm reading something that I'm just not clicking with, I'm just not doing well. Why is that? And is it I just don't particularly like this kind of thing. I think I see what's going on and that's just not what I want to be reading or is it something closer to my experience where either consciously or unconsciously I want the story to be something else and I'm reading for that instead. So it's been a good experience to be reading Uprooted both to reveal some of my unconscious biases and also to remind myself that if a book's not working for me it's probably worth sort of interrogating why that is and how much that has to do with what I'm expecting the book to be doing and how much of it has to do with understanding and just not really liking what the book is trying to do. Anyway, uh, quick thoughts on Uprooted. I will probably have more of them later when I've read it while being concerned about the actual protagonist rather than her jailer. Moving on to a comment earlier this week on Twitter about uh, a book being one of the most important books of the year, which got me thinking about what would make me consider a book important. One of the first thoughts I had was related to my interview with Troy and his comment about Acacia, seeing Acacia and reading Acacia and having that be an inspiration to write. A book that persuaded someone to go pursue their dreams is an important book, and a book that persuaded someone to go write more stories and books that I love is an important book for all sorts of reasons. So, in that sense, there is personal impact of books, uh, and at some point, do enough personal impacts add up to a collective impact and importance? There is also at some point the question of whether all things with collective impact are importance and whether importance can be measured by things like sales ranks? I am skeptical of that notion. But mostly for me, when I'm thinking about what makes a book important, I am thinking something like I want more books in the genre that are doing this kind of thing. I want to push this book at authors and say, figure out how this works and give me more of that. And I realized that the book for me recently that I've actually been having that reaction to a lot is The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. Having read it once I want to go back and read it again slowly to figure out what makes this book tick and more importantly I want authors who are writing books that I will be reading to read Grace of Kings. The plot is close to what I'm familiar with. It is relatively episodic but also goes from beginning to end. It's clear that Ken's in control of the plot and what he's doing, and the characters are, are moving at the pace that he wants them to, and events are moving at the pace that he wants them to. And having said all of that about the plot, there are digressions, there are episodes, there are points where we just take a little while to hang out with one of the heroes and see how Mata gets his sword, or the episode with the queen who lives in the beautiful floating city and is taken prisoner and ends up escaping to the rebels and mata and his uncle there is some level of plot development in all of that there are things to be said certainly i mean it it is very cliched very stylized very tropey and in that sense the the gender handling in that particular episode is is terrible and awful and a throwback to earlier days of fantasy although somewhat intentionally and self-consciously. I say kind of defensively without really wanting to get too much into gender roles and The Grace of Kings because I think that that is a big conversation that's been handled in a few places and certainly not one that I should be commenting on on my lonesome. Point being, there are episodes within The Grace of Kings. There are times where the story just says, we're going to stop for a bit. What's What's going on right now is not primarily about advancing the plot, at a pace. It is primarily about having this episode to introduce you to this character or this hero or give you some sense of why this hero is who they are. I would like more authors to be doing that kind of pacing, and I can't even quite put my finger on it, but, you know, authors who write and read for a living, go out there and figure out how to give me more of those those episodes, those wonderful, I think of the heroic boasting in Beowulf, certainly, and that, that genre of taking a moment to indulge in the hero being the hero. Another technique that shows up in Grace of Kings repeatedly that I would really like to be seen in more other books. The battles and the combat scenes, I tend not to be someone who visualizes battles particularly well. and. Some moments kind of crystallize for me and some kind of give me the chills, but often when people talk about authors who they think do battle scenes particularly well or have the battle scenes blocked well or individual fight scenes that are blocked well, I think I'm getting the vocabulary right there. I just, it doesn't do it. I don't really care where the sword is. Sorry. There are many scenes in The Grace of Kings that stick out at me. Visual Mata unhorsing the bandit, riding down on him and swinging his sword, and the sword shattering, and the bandit being flung off the horse, or some of the city battles and descending from on high, and then kind of in retrospect or in afterwards, having the how did this one scene happen? So, having the battles be crystallized into a single scene. Having that scene be what leads and what gets my attention and hooks me into what's going on, and then afterwards having the explanations that are necessary. Again, I don't know exactly how it's pulled off, but it feels like that's what's going on. This is another technique that I would love for other authors to analyze and figure out and then start using and doing because it's pretty cool to have this sense of the battle that happened and the combat that happened, and I don't get that very often. One other thing that I noticed about Grace of Kings that is a little surprising for me to say, and and I feel like I both find it interesting and I'm a little skeptical, so let me know if I'm way off base here. There are many ways in which the world of Grace of Kings is wondrous, and there is a sense of wonder, a sense of wonder, as the uh, pulpy sci-fi books used to say that I don't associate with epic fantasy. I certainly associate epic fantasy with world building and rich and deep and immersive world building, but not with whale-shaped submarines and narwhals galloping up a river and flying balloons that that are used in battle and just The grace of kings is full of wonders. And there is throughout, I find, a sense of wonder. I think that there are ways, maybe, and here's where I'm getting a little hesitant, maybe that the world building kind of steps aside a little bit to say this is just awesome and cool and wonderful and so it's part of what's going on. And maybe some of the rigid world building isn't there quite as much, although in general I can't think of places that I would poke at the world building and say this didn't seem to work. Maybe it is simply a lack of imagination among much epic fantasy and much of the epic fantasy that I've read. I wouldn't entirely dispute that. But whatever it is, there is a sense of wonder in Grace of Kings that, again, I would love to have more of. I think that a lot of the reason that and McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern still sits with me so strongly is because dragon riders and that hit at the right time and I was the right age for it, but also it is wonderful. There were many places in Grace of Kings that were full of wonder in ways that I don't remember a lot of other fantasy stories really hitting me with just the way that the world and the setting were, in fact, that wonderful. So, an important book, one that I would like to be shoving at authors. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. This week's book is The Lord of the Rings, which was a formative text for me that I read many, many, many times. I cannot even begin to unpack the impact that it had on me, although I will say I knew I wanted to read Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time when I got the same kind of chills as Moiraine was discussing the Battle of Amon's Field as I did... At some key points in Tolkien's Battle of the Palinor Fields. So, anyway, I love Lord of the Rings. I mention it and I was thinking about it not because I've reread it recently, but because I was retelling the story to my daughter. I will link to the essay I wrote about that on Book Punks. I was retelling Lord of the Rings to my four year old in the car yesterday and found myself almost tearing up during the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, and specifically Eowyn's confrontation with the Lord of the Nazgul. After telling it, after telling Mm -hmm. her the story about 17 times, I think I finally figured out how to retell that particular confrontation in a way that has the most emotional impact on me, never mind how she feels about it. So anyway, I was affected. I enjoyed it. I enjoy immensely retelling these stories to my four-year-old and having her recite arcane knowledge about Middle-earth. I feel like I'm doing parenting right. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show on the website, cabbagesandkings.audio. There's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show, or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at j Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.